Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is up, sports fans? My name is Jake Izuski. You can call me Jake Iggy or Iggy for short. And this is Iggy's Sports Talk. So I really appreciate everybody tuning in to another episode of Iggy's Sports Talk. And today, I have a very special guest on the show today. His name is Del Leonard Jones, and he is an author of a historical fiction novel called At the Bat, The Strikeout That Shamed America. And it's currently ranked number 10 on Goodreads' list of 112 greatest baseball novels of all time. So how's it going, Del? Good, good. Thank you. Absolutely. How's your, uh, how's your 2021 going so far? Uh, about the same as 2020 so far. Still waiting, <laughs> waiting for that uh, vaccine to kick in somewhere. Right? It's out there in the ether somewhere, I think. Exactly. What, uh, what did you do during the quarantine time and the downtime of uh, 2020? Oh, gee, for one thing, my car battery went dead uh, for about two months and I didn't even I didn't even miss it. Uh, (laughs) And uh, actually, we started my wife and I actually started uh, 2020 on a cruise in Antarctica. Wow. And and we were told we were one of the few people that had ever been to Antarctica when we were on the cruise. And I think that was the last cruise ship uh, that went there before everything shut down. We, We got off. January and then right after that everything shut down so we were either the last ones to be to Antarctica or close to the last ones I'm sure there's still like scientists that are stranded up there and right and and not getting coronavirus but uh, I don't think tourists are up there anymore or down so there who, who knows when we're going to be able to even go on cruises again or even cru- if cruises will be a thing uh let's say after this whole thing is done yeah, yeah, they already they already had their problems even before coronavirus. There was always something going on with those things. So I don't know. You jam a bunch of people in. Uh, my theory was that they should have used the cruise ships right from the start to uh, get get uh, herd immunity with young people who didn't really wouldn't care if they got the coronavirus. They'd right. put them on a cruise ship, uh, pack three thousand of them on a cruise ship for like three weeks until everybody got it. And everybody got over it and then they could let them all out and they'd all be immune. And if they did that with all the cruise ships, I think we could have reached herd immunity that way. I, I wouldn't be surprised. That's, that's definitely <laughs> a good idea. I mean, especially for, for like myself, I, I had some friends who actually like right, uh, right before March, they went on a cruise ship. And uh, I remember when they came back, I said to them, because we were going back up to college. I'm like, I don't know how comfortable I am with being in the same like house as you guys. And they were like, what are you talking about? You have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, while you were gone, this coronavirus thing really blew up. And, and, and then the next week later, our semester uh, was put online. And that's when they were like, wow, uh, this, this thing is actually for real. This is real. Yeah. Yeah. But what did you, uh, so other than, other than just, you know, trying to get through it, did you pick up any hobbies? Did, did you, did you clean a lot of stuff around your house? Did you get a lot of stuff done? Well, I decided I was going to learn how to do my, no, I have two novels and I was going to put them on audio book. So I got on and learned how to use the audible software, which is amazing. I don't know. I don't know if you've had any uh, work with that, with your, all your audio thing, but it's like free software. And uh, it wasn't that even for someone as old as I am, it wasn't that hard to learn. I got me this, uh, this Yeti microphone, uh, plugged it into a laptop and uh, recorded my uh, my novels on audiobook, and that that was a lot of fun. I I was I felt like I was a back back as a kid, like 
play acting, doing my little play, just reading my <laughs> novel and doing voices and stuff like that. I have no idea. I'm sure it's like far from actor like professional, but uh, with the, with the software, all you have to do, if you like stumble on a word or something, right. you just go back, you, you hit uh, like control D and it takes you back like five seconds and you're hearing what you recorded. And then all of a sudden you just like roll right into what you were doing. It's just, it's pretty amazing. So you can stumble all day long. Uh, and I was in no hurry. So I could just like fix everything that way. That's easy enough. That, that's cool that you're able to go back, change it and, and you know, make it how you want it to, because I, I listened to a little bit of your audio book and, and I compared to other audio books, you know, some people just sit down in front of their book, just read it. And it's very monologue ish. It's, it's very monotone ish, excuse me. And uh, you you put a lot of personality with it. And, and so I, I was curious, how, how long did it really take you to be able to record the audio book to what you wanted it to be? Oh, probably, you know, I, I would do maybe a chapter a day. There's, there's like uh, 20 some chapters. So it's probably about a month worth of recording, which I think that's a lot longer than the professional actors take to record a book. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was in no hurry and I re-recorded, re you know, I would like record a paragraph and listen to it and either move on, think it was okay, or just go ahead and re-record the paragraph uh, you know, if I was like making a living at it, like the actors are, I wouldn't be able to afford to do that. But uh, I just went back and re-recorded and, and just had fun doing it. That's awesome. It, it must have helped definitely the quarantine time go by much, much quicker than than you really expected it to. Yeah, yeah. And it was fun getting, you know, my sound booth closet all fixed up and everything. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm, I thought of doing it in there, but it was, it, the light's not very good. I don't know if it's, it, I'm in my dining room now, so it may be kind of echoey, but it's kind of nice to have a, a closet where you don't get the, the echo effect. Uh, and, and they, they recommend that with the, with the audio books. Really yeah, it dead, definitely makes sense. Dead sound. Right. And, and so I, I was curious, so your, your book uh, at bat, at the bat, excuse me, the, the strikeout that shamed America. I, I want to first start off with uh, when did you first fall in love with the game of baseball? Oh, gee, uh, I've been in love with it my whole life. I was actually, uh, I go back far enough to where I remember Willie Mays. Uh, he was kind of my hero. My parents grew up in the Bay Area. So I was a San Francisco Giants fan, Willie Mays, Willie McCovey. Uh, and then I played Little League, but that was back when uh, they didn't have video recorders, but my, I was lucky and my father, I think I was lucky enough. My father had an old fashioned, like just movie, uh, movie camera uh, that he'd got from my grandmother and the, 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 the film and the developing of the film was like really expensive. So what he would do when I was up at bat in the little league, he would wait for the pitcher to be just about to deliver the ball. He'd turn on the camera and then I would swing and miss. And then he would turn off the camera because I didn't get a hit. So he would probably would have left it running if I hit the ball. So he, I've got this video of me like swinging like a hundred times a minute uh, because he recorded every one of my swings and misses. So that, that probably describes my, uh, my career in baseball. That I, you know, I've always been a fan, was never very good at it. Uh, started playing uh, slow pitch that's more my speed I could actually make contact and slow pitch softball so that that's what I moved on to when I was older I I tried out slow pitch softball uh, uh actually it, it was a, it was one of my college like intramural sports uh, and I played baseball all throughout growing up all until high school uh, and then when I got to college I wanted to focus on my academics but 
it's interesting because I had such a hard time with being able to time up when the pitch was coming. And so most of the time I would roll over to the third baseman or go to the shortstop and I would just always pull the hell out of the baseball because (laughs) the, the speed difference is insane. Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's nothing worse than somebody that's used to a, a fast pitch coming into slow yeah. pitch. In fact, my my daughter played. She was pretty good at, at fast pitch uh, softball. She she got a scholarship to South Carolina to play, and it was always a when when you got to like high level fast pitch softball, it was always good to have like a pitcher that could throw strikes but really slow strikes because the players they would get just get used to the speed and when they started crushing like the really good fast pitcher you'd bring in this slow pitcher that could throw it over the plate mm-hmm. and and for at least an inning or two before they could catch up to her they would just it, they would just be tearing their hair out because these things would just like you know they knew it was coming it was like changeups and they knew the changeup was coming every pitch but it took them a while to actually get used to it that, that was me as a pitcher. I all, all throughout little league and all throughout uh, like middle school and like that sort of stuff. Kids would come in, throw like 70 miles per hour. I was a second baseman. So that kind of tells you how my arm strength really is. And so I would go in there, throw, you know, 55, 60 miles per hour. And I would, it's funny that you brought the changeup. I would have this changeup that would go from 60 miles per hour to my fastball and would go down to like, I, I would, I would throw it as slow as I could just yeah. to get over the plate because I knew, I knew it would tie people up. I knew I would get the batters all upset, but obviously after that one full inning that I got a one, two, three batters started to wait back on it. And I would be uh, swinging my head around real fast. Yeah. And that's, that's when, that's when you bring back in the fast pitcher. When, when they start catching up to the slow pitcher, then you bring the fast one back in. <laughs> exactly. So, so you brought up the uh, San Francisco giants and, and I also read as well that, that you're a uh, Washington nationals fan as well. Right. Yeah, I got I got the San Francisco Giants from my parents. They grew up in the Bay Area, and then I've been in uh, the Washington D.C. area since 1992. I came out here to to work, so I, I was here when they reestablished the Washington Nationals, and I've been a, a pretty big fan of theirs, and and really loved the World Series not not the pandemic World Series, but the World mm-hmm. Series before that, when it went seven games and nobody won a home game. Uh, that that uh, that was just an amazing world series to me that the, the nationals won in uh, seven games and they won all four on the road. Right. Yeah. It, m- it must've been tough, for, especially for you. Cause you said that you've been there since 92. So like seeing the progression, at least to the team where they had to get that number one pick and then get another number one pick. And, but like, it must've been exciting as, as a fan in, in being within, uh, you know, the state to see guys like Strasburg, Bryce Harper, who's my, actually my favorite player in the MLB. Um, going to Washington and really bring that excitement. Yeah. Yeah, really. It really was. And they never, they were always pretty good. In fact, in fact, I think they had a better team a year or two before the one they won the world series. I think they were the wild card team Mm -hmm. uh, the the year they won the world series and like the year before they won the division and they were, you know, maybe the Los Angeles Dodgers were as good as they were, but uh, nobody else was. And then they, I think they lost in the first round. So they, they actually had a better team that year that I think that was Bryce Harper's last year here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it was always, it was funny, even, even as a big Bryce Harper fan to, to see the, uh, you know, the posts on social media jabbing at him about, you know, the, the nationals win a world series, obviously when their best player leaves. Right. But, uh, but I, I think it's, I think it's incredible that what they were able to do during that year with 
I forget what the percentage was, but I think it was like 13% after the all-star break that, that they were supposed to uh, like make the playoffs. And yeah. then, you know, they switch it all around. I remember just like wa- watching that as, as a diehard baseball fan, I, I was ecstatic for, yeah. for Washington j- just since it was their first one. Yeah. I even bailed on them, which is kind of like a, I guess I'm a, a fair weather fan because I just kind of like, I figured they were out of it. Yeah. And didn't even pay attention to them for a few weeks. Then all of a sudden I look at the, at the standings and they're not close to first place in the division, but I realized, wow, they, they have a good shot at making the playoffs. It's like what happened? You know, I went to sleep for three weeks and all of a sudden they're in it. Exactly. I'm a, I'm a big Red Sox fan, as you can see behind me. So this past year I was, I was watching those standings every single game, hoping and praying that, that there would be something that would go well for them this past year to help them make the playoffs. But obviously that didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. You got to ignore them. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that worked for me. <laughs> there you go. But I, I, I was curious. So uh, you, you started as a, uh, you started as a sports writer and, and then you became a business reporter uh, for USA today and, and, and mainly wrote in the money section for 18 years. And I, I was curious. So what is sort of like a normal day reporting in the money section for, for USA Today? Do you look at a lot of numbers, a lot of finances? Uh, yeah, I had the, uh, for the most time I was in the money section, I had what they called the corporate leadership beat. And it, it was actually established. I was the first reporter on that beat because USA Today, uh, they were like the surveys and, and stuff, the marketing surveys and stuff showed that readers really liked USA Today but it wasn't being read by top executives, uh, uh, leaders of companies, especially in New York, where uh, they all read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Right. Uh, but they weren't reading USA Today, the survey showed. And so they wanted to get these people to read USA Today because those people had a lot of clout with advertising spending uh, you know, my beat wasn't set up to like get advertising, but to get these people to read the paper so that they would make, you know, more intelligent advertising decisions. Right. And so I took over the beat and I and it, the, the challenge was to get them in, into the paper, to get them to read it and yet write stories that were of interest to the general readership, too. I didn't just want them to read it and everybody else be bored with it. So I started writing stories about CEOs that were spanked as children and, and uh, CEOs who cheated at golf, things that, you know, other people want to read about CEOs, uh, but also the CEOs want to read about, you know, all, all everybody, every one of them I interviewed about cheating at golf says, oh, I don't cheat at golf. And I says, well, have you ever played with a CEO who cheated at golf? Oh, yeah, all the time I play with CEOs who cheated at golf. <laughs> And so I was able to cobble together a story without anybody ad- admitting that they did it, but everybody else did it. <laughs> That's interesting. That, that must have been cool to see uh, or just to like research those different kinds of stories, because, you know, just from like the plain view, regular news. I, I mean, you, you never really hear about these these stories until really social media came about where, you know, people were leaking things. You know, we just saw like the whole blow up with with Hollywood, Harvey Weinstein, like. Bill Cosby, no, nothing, none of that really would have came out if social media wasn't wasn't a factor. So, do do you think social media might have played a little bit differently if in in your job, you know, eighteen years ago? Well, it pretty much destroyed the business model of newspapers. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, for good or bad, newspapers are are on a shoestring compared to what they used to be. Right. I don't know how much readers know, but if, if they're, you're still reading a newspaper, it's being put out by a fraction of the people who used to put it out. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, you know, you kind of have to go to other sources for news. A lot of the good investigative reporting now is done by nonprofit foundations because they're the only ones that get enough uh, uh, contributions to hire a staff that can you can put three reporters on a story uh, for a length of time. Newspapers can no longer afford to do that. In fact, I don't know if you ever saw the Academy Award-winning movie, The Spotlight. It was, it was in uh, it was about Boston, and it was a great movie, great newspaper movie. But I was just sad watching it because when I watched it, I figured this is the last time newspapers will ever do this. It was it was about they put like three or four reporters on for a year looking at uh, child abuse by the Catholic church, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, the, the, no longer can newspapers, even the big newspapers, maybe the New York times that may be in the best position, wall street journal to do something like that. But I just can't imagine a newspaper putting four three, four reporters on one story for a year. It just, it just wouldn't happen because they just can't afford to do it. Right. Yeah. And, and then nowadays somebody would snatch it up, post it on social media and bam, all that money, all that story, all the all the story revenue that could have come from it, gone. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I, I never really really thought about it that way. And uh, and and I'm I'm curious. So after your 18 years with the USA Today, sort of sort of what? How, how were you able to find your interest in writing novels? Uh, well, you know, I, I saw the I saw the writing on the wall for newspapers, and I was in good enough position to get out of it. And I'd, I'd always wanted to write a novel. And I decided, you know, all the time I was reporting every once in a while, uh, an age, I'd write a story, maybe something like the CEO golf cheating thing or something. And, a, and an agent would call me up on the phone and say, you know, that might make a pretty good book. You know, they were looking for nonfiction. And uh, I always told them, you know, it probably would, but I just don't have the attention span to spend a year on one thing. And so I never did it. Uh, but then when I was no longer, you know, working every day, I still do a little freelancing, but uh, I was no longer like putting in all the time. I decided I wanted to write a book, but I wanted to, I decided I was done with interviewing people, uh, but I wanted to write about people. So I did historical novels where real people were in the book, but they were no longer alive. So I didn't have to do a single interview. I did like a lot of historical research and that kind of thing but I didn't, I didn't have to interview a, a single person to do it. So I went back far enough. My first book was 1898, set in 1898. At the Bat is set in 1888, which is the year Casey at the Bat, the poem was written. And so uh, that, I went back there and, and the, people, the people I brought into the book, the real life people like Cap Anson, well, he's, a, the hall of, he's like one of the original first Hall of Fame uh, players. Uh, I put in, uh, in the book Moses Fleetwood Walker, who was the last African American player in the major leagues before Jackie Robinson, at least until a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and uh, I put in Nellie Bly, who was a, an investigative reporter with the New York World, and uh, and I put in Mouse Matthews, who I who was who pitched at that time, so he kind of fit into it too. And I was just amazed. He was the he's the winningest pitcher not in the Hall of Fame. 
And so, you know, the poem doesn't say who was pitching to Casey at the time, mm -hmm. but I say who, who better than the winningest pitcher not in the Hall of Fame to be the one that struck out Casey. So I used him too. And they were all from this era. I mean, they were, being in that one game, it's all make-believe. But these players were all from, from that era. So I was able to, to put them all in. That's interesting. And I, I think it's kind of cool how, you know, you, you brought up how, you know, you did have these other experiences or these other opportunities in your past, but it, it all, it all was able to come together at, at some point. But I, I was wondering, so like during the process of, of writing a novel, you, you mentioned how you, you said initially that you didn't have the attention span to sit down for a year and write a novel. Was, was that process sort of a learning experience where you had to sort of, have an open mind about sitting down and, and focusing on something for a year. And, and did you have to get used to that? Uh, yeah. Although, you know, I kind of, I kind of took it as a, like a part-time job. I, I get up first thing in the morning and I would write until lunchtime. It'd be, you know, a good solid four hours of writing uh, or before I started writing the, the research, mm -hmm. then I would go and I would work out, uh, I always worked out like right after lunch, which is people thought I was crazy because I work out on a full stomach. And that gave me a second morning and either I could come back and, and work on the book or I could go do something else. So it's basically like a part-time job, but it's a part-time job that you have to do. I had to do every day. It's not like something I could say, Oh, I'm going to work today. I'm not going to work tomorrow. I, I made it. I made it a habit to put in those four hours every day. And then I also officiate uh, sports like mostly high school level sports. And so that filled like my late afternoons, early evenings, a lot of the time. Uh, so I had a busy day. I had the part-time job of writing, go work out, you know, a couple hours later, I was off to some kind of a game, a basketball game, fast pitch, softball, uh, field hockey. I, I officiate all three of those. That's interesting. And, and did, did those, did your experience as, as sort of an umpire officiating these games uh, sort of influence you to want to write about more of a, a sports centric uh, historical fiction book uh, like at the BAP? Yeah. And especially it, it gave me uh, a main character. I want, I, I decided right at the start, I was going to make my narrator of, of the Casey at the bat book, the umpire, uh, you know, there's a lot, there's a, there's a couple of chapters from Casey's point of view and from Nellie Bly's point of view, but the main character in the book is the umpire. And so, because I had, you know, I never, I never umpired at a high level, but I had enough experience to know what it feels like to get like, you know, harangued and harassed when everybody thinks you blew a call. And something, and the worst part is like, when you think you may have, I mean, it can be so close and you're, you kind of have second thoughts. Well, maybe I did blow that call. And at my level, I never had instant replay to go back and look at, uh, look at the TV to see if I did or did not, but right. it would give you doubts. The best, the best feeling I ever had was when it was a close play and I was certain I got the call right. Uh, but a coach who had a different angle or they had a bias and the fans like on one side of the field, it's amazing what angles can do. Mm -hmm. They would, they would like really give me a hard time about the call, but I actually felt good when I knew I got the call right. And, but they didn't, uh, I basically said, you know, all you people just kick that call is basically <laughs> what I said in my head, kicking, kicking a call is what in an officiating. That's what they call. Like when you, 
when you mess up, right. <laughs> which does happen. And, and you know it, uh, that mm-hmm. all, all officials at all levels know that they, they mess up calls sometimes that everybody's human. I, I actually have had some experience with, with, with uh, umpiring baseball games. I did, I did a few oh. little league games and, and I, I remember I, in, it was literally games where like kids like 10 years old were playing and, and I had the coaches like yelling at me from the third base side. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm volunteering for this. Like what is going on right now? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm like, I get it, but like, come on, these kids are like 10. And, uh, and it, it was funny cause I actually had an experience where uh, I, I, my friends were playing on, on both the opposing teams. And it was like all of my friends on, on these both teams. And I, 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 was the field umpire and i remember there, there was like one call where the next day at school i got tons of crap They're like what are you talking about i don't know how you saw that like all this sort of stuff and i'm just like listen i was just doing my job <laughs> yeah and the, the young actually the younger they are the more the more abuse you take as an umpire uh actually in any sport the lower level you do the harder harder it is to officiate it first First, the, the kids are like doing the crazy things that you really need to know the rules about. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's like in a little league where there'll be a situation where somebody will bat out of order. And uh, when, you get to higher, when you get to higher level ball, that never happens. So those, those guys never really need to really know the rules as much as the people that you have to deal with it. You know, all of a sudden you have somebody batting out of order. You need to know what the rule book says about what you do when somebody bats out of order. Yeah. So people that are that are umpiring or officiating the lower levels that actually have the hardest problems and, and they're all also doing the craziest things you know the higher level you do you can kind of like anticipate you know here comes a slide by you know you you know the throws coming in you know there's going to be a slide by and so you kind of position yourself for that because you're doing a high level game but at a low level you know you never know what the kid's going to do you know they're, they're just uh, you know they may turn around run backwards. You may get a past runner, which is another rule. I was watching a major league game one time where uh, there was a, there was a runner on first base and a deep fly hit to right field. And the runner had to kind of hold up to see if the ball was going to get caught. And, uh, and so it, it wasn't, the ball dropped, but he wasn't that far. He was only like halfway to second. And in the meantime, the guy who hit the ball that deep was running, you know, full speed and he went right by the guy, you know, the guy had to like start running again when the ball, right. the guy that hit the ball ran by him and the camera just happened to be right on the, on the past runner and the umpire. And I could see the umpire's eyes just get big, like, Oh crud, something has just happened. And you could just see his wheels turning because this is probably something that at a major league level, it's probably something that maybe happens to one umpire once every 10 years or something. Right. Got the call right. But I was just, I was just laughing at the look on his face when he saw it and he knew he had to call something and the wheels were turning. So. I can <laughs> only, I can only imagine what, what the runner who passed him in his head, like the thing about if he turned around, he's like, wait, no, you got to go, you go. Like, that, that, <laughs> that would look so like weird on TV, especially watching it. I feel like as a fan, I'd be like, what are you doing? Yeah. yeah. And the rule is that the guy who did the passing, he's, he's out makes sense. Uh, automatically, but the ball is live. So you don't, you don't kill it or anything, but the umpire has to signal that the runner who just the batter in this case is out and now, but the other guy's still like free to run or free to be put out. It's still a live ball. So that's the rule. But this umpire had to make a quick 
decision. And he did. He, uh, he was just a little bit delayed, but he did finally come and call the guy out that was supposed to be out and made the right call. So I was pretty impressed that he, he did it when it's probably something that has never happened to him. So I was pretty impressed that he got the call right, even though you could see he was like thinking about it really hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That that's crazy. I've, I've I think I don't think I've ever heard or, or seen anything like that on a baseball field. Uh, but but I, I read something where uh, you you only uh, feared your personal safety when you were umpiring a church league game. I, I was yeah. curious what that story was about. <laughs> yeah, that that was actually a slow pitch game. I don't umpire slow pitch hardly ever. I'm I may have done like ten games in my life of slow pitch, but I was doing this church league slow pitch game. And it was so, it was so low level that the home plate, they had two plates so that nobody could ever get hurt at the plate. They would have like the plate where the batter stood and they would have another plate off to the side where the runners would, if you were going to score, you would have to cross that plate. And it was treated like a first base call. Like if the throw, if the, the runner crossed one plate, the catcher caught the ball on the other. And if the throw beat the runner, it was like a force out at first base which really made a lot of people hold up at third base because you could get thrown out a lot easier uh, that way than you could if you, they actually had to tag you. Right. And so that I was just telling you that to show how low level this game was. And there was this one, this one guy on the team that he'd been in a little bit of a trouble, you know, a little bit of a head case the whole game. And, uh, and his team had been behind the whole game and uh, he, they were batting in the last inning the, bo- the bottom of the last inning and they were making a comeback and uh, he came up with two outs and either two or three runners on base. I don't remember, but they were, they were like the tying and winning runs that were on base and he was up and he came up and he like sticks his bat out and starts yelling at the opposing team, like just saying a bunch of crud at them. And by rule, you're not allowed to taunt the opposing team. Right. And I told him that I says, don't taunt, don't taunt the opposing team, but he kept doing it. And I says, well, if you, if you taunt them again, I'm going to have to eject you. And he did it again. And so I ejected him. And by rule, uh, not only was he ejected, but because he was batting at the time, he's also out. And so he was, he was ejected. He was out. It was game. over. That was a third out of the inning game over. And he, he came after me and his, and his uh, teammates had to restrain him. And so that's the only time I, you know, I've taken a lot of, a lot of uh, verbal abuse, but that's the only time where I like thought somebody was going to actually take a swing at me (laughs) because he was just nuts enough to do it. Right. Wow. That's a triple whammy right there. You can't get any, any worse situation than that right there, especially, especially for the guy I'm I'm meeting like, wow, you, you strike or you get ejected, you're out and bam, the game's over. That's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I, I wanted to I wanted to dive deeper into uh, your your novel that at the bat the strikeout that shamed America because uh, I read that it was based on the Ernest Thayer's uh, eighteen eighty eight poem uh, Casey at the Bat, and we talked about that a little bit throughout this conversation. But I read that it, it was it was lost for a little bit um, from from somewhere, and and it was found in in the uh, in the Beverly University Library. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Well, the uh, I kept trying to find the original poem. You know, there were there were versions on the internet. It's in the public domain, so anybody can reprint it and do whatever with it. And 
but I kept like running across like slightly different versions of it. I mean, they were pretty consistent, but they were slightly different versions. And I wanted to find, I knew uh, from what I'd read that the first time it ever appeared was in the San Francisco Chronicle and in June of 1888. And I wanted to find the original poem in the newspaper. So I knew exactly what version was the, was the first version and I couldn't find it. And I even talked to like two or three, you know, really good baseball historians who told me, yeah, it's uh, that's where it was. It was in the, in the San Francisco Chronicle. And, uh, and, but, and I says, well, have you ever seen the poem? And, and none of them said, no, I haven't ever like actually seen the poem in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. So I got, I got on, finally, I went to my public library here and I says, I would really like to get this news, this newspaper. And they did some searching for me. And the only, the only place they could find uh, this paper was in, at the University of California, Berkeley. So they did like a library exchange and back comes microfilm, which you probably don't know what it is, no. but it's, it's basically just, they took slide, you know, they just take slides of newspapers and stuff. And you have to get this little machine mm -hmm. and look through this lens and, and actually read kind of like slide pictures of the newspaper. They don't keep the actual print copies because right. they would just probably wear out and disappear. So back comes this microfilm and there's only one library uh, in this whole area that has a machine that I can read it on. And so I took it to this machine and read it and there and there it was there was the poem and the, the amazing thing to me about the original poem that was in none of the other versions was that the poet Ernest there had said Jimmy Blake in one pair in one stanza of the poem and then he called him Johnny in another stanza of the poem he was in such a poetry newspaper poetry back then was used as filler when uh, you know they would they would put all the stories in the paper, and if they wound up with like a corner of white space at the bottom of the paper, they would just throw in some poem or or something they would call filler. And so that that's what this was. He probably Ernest there had probably written this poem just in case they ever needed it to throw into a corner somewhere, and he just banged it out, and there it was. He he named. Uh, Jimmy Blake, who was one of the who was one of the people who were on base, who m miraculously got on base so that Casey could come up to bat. You know, everybody knew that they would win the game if Casey could get up, mm -hmm. but he had the, all these like low life hitters like batting ahead of him, and one of them was Jimmy Blake, who was also Johnny Blake in the poem. So that that was kind of the amazing thing to me that uh, and somebody when it whoever copied the poem or whoever changed the poem down down the line had fixed it for him. You know, it was, it was Jimmy Blake in, in all other, all other versions of the poem I saw. That's interesting. It, it, that's, that's cool. How you, how you really had to dig to be able to find, you know, the original poem. And, and, you know, I, I bet that there's, there's so many things uh, like, like out there where like historically they get changed a little bit or some people make it into their own. Uh, but, but I was curious once, once you read like, the original poem and you you were able to really understand or obviously fully fully grasp the whole magnitude of this poem i was curious what really intrigued you uh to use this poem and write a novel about it uh you know i i, I consider myself a pretty good writer but 
because I've been in newspapers, or maybe that's why I don't consider myself kind of an, an inventor of stories. And so I started using using the poem, these famous, my first book was The Cremation of Sam McGee. And it it's also based upon a poem, uh, Robert W. Service poem, and that, that takes place in the, in the Klondike Gold Rush in 1898. And that's a famous poem. And these are, these are poems like Casey. These are poems that have stories. And so I took these poems that had kind of a, a basic story to them and said, you know, I think I can take that and expand on it mm-hmm. and use my writing skills using this kind of this amoeba of a story, the strikeout, this cremation of this guy in the Klondike and use that. Uh, as a story, because I, I had trouble kind of like just sitting there and say and inventing a story. Uh, but this gave me the story so that I could, you know, m- the books are much more than the poem as far as story, but it gave me a launching off pad to do it. That's interesting. And and I, I heard in uh, your interview with, on, on ESPN radio that there's a survey done and, and that most of the kids at that time knew this poem by heart better than they knew the Gettysburg Address. I, I think that's, I think that's crazy. Yeah. And they, and they still do a, just a generation older than me. In fact, I do, I do a, a Google alerts on both the cremation of Sam McGee and Casey at the bat and Mudville so that I get an email from Google every time there's an article or anything that, that has Casey at the bat or Mudville in it. And I'll get like every, every couple of weeks, I'll get alerted to some article that has Casey at the bat in it. And when I go, when I go to the article, it's always an obituary of somebody who's like in their eighties, nineties, who, who had the poem memorized. And I found out that back, back in those days, uh, back in my father's generation, for some reason, poetry memorization was part of school curriculum. You know, everybody memorized poems and uh, Casey at the bat was one of them. A lot of them memorized. And when, they're, and when their lives are boiled down to like uh, a handful of paragraphs in an obituary, it's just amazing how many times they'll say, well, at their 90th birthday, they got up and by heart recited Casey at the bat, you know, <laughs> because they had it memorized in it and they had it memorized as, as a child. And anything you memorize as a child, you still remember when you're 90. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just amazed at how many obituaries I call up that have Casey at the bat in them. Yeah, that, that's really interesting how, you know, this this poem from uh, 1888 is, is still being brought up now is still known really around the world. And and just for my listeners, uh, basically, the Casey at the bat poem is basically about, uh, you, you know, Casey's uh, goes up to bat and there's two runners on and everybody knows that he's one that he's the best batter uh, w- within within, you know, the league. And everybody expects that he is going to be the one to help them win the game. And he ultimately strikes out. And, and I was curious, is, with, when you wrote uh, the strikeout that shamed America, I, I was curious, how did the strikeout shame America? Uh, in a couple of ways. One, one I can't give away because it would be a spoiler for the end of, end of the book. Uh, but uh, I made Casey kind of the character of Casey in the book is that He's kind of like a hero, but he has kind of personality issues that nobody knows about. Kind of like I imagine most celebrities are today. They kind of like 
I don't, I don't see how anybody can keep their head together very well and be famous. You know, a few people seem to be able to handle it, but mm-hmm. it seems like most people who get uh, really famous have, have uh, are head cases essentially. And so I made Casey kind of uh, that, that way. He was, he was a hero. In fact, I, I had him playing in California and back then all major league baseball was on the East coast because all travel was by train. So they couldn't they couldn't go very far, but maybe to the Midwest. And, but I had Casey being in playing baseball in California, and they kept him there, keeping him from jumping to the major leagues by giving him a cut of the gate uh, as part of his contract. And therefore, he was the first player who actually got rich off the game itself. Al Spaulding, who is in the book a little bit too, he got he he got rich off of baseball, but he got it from a business, and he went into the sporting goods business after he played baseball. Uh, but I invented Casey as the first player who actually got rich off a game, fame. And he was like enormously famous, and then therefore was a little bit crazy. And so that probably plays into like the shaming of America, plus the the strikeout it, itself. In fact, I think that's why the poem is famous. If Casey had hit a walk off home run in the poem we never would have heard of it it's it's because he struck out mm-hmm. it's the it's the twist at the at the end and in fact newspaper poetry in those days was almost it was always a happy ending if you read the newspaper poetry uh, the the poems always ended happily and so this poem probably like really stood out when people read it uh uh because it didn't have a happy ending it had that kind of surprise he struck out ending and, and then it was picked up by a, an actor, got famous uh, mainly because this actor, he was kind of a, a no-named actor. He went out on stage one time and uh, it was kind of like vaudeville and he, he didn't know what to do. And some, somebody handed him the poem and he memorized it like backstage, like really quickly. I guess actors have that talent uh, to memorize and he memorized the poem and he went out on stage and there happened to be a baseball team in attendance. And after he, he recited the poem, on stage, they stood up on their chairs and cheered. And so from that point on, wow. he became famous uh, and, uh, and he recited it 10,000 times. And in fact, it's wow. one of the original, it's one of the original recordings that's still out there uh, where this, uh, this actor, DeWolf Hopper, uh, you can still hear him recite, not the original time he, he recited it, but he recited it 10,000 times and it was recorded. And so you can actually hear uh, dual Hopper recite Casey at the bat. Plus, you can hear lots of other. If you go out, if you go on YouTube, you can find all kinds of people who uh, famous and not famous who have recited Casey at the bat on YouTube. That's interesting. Well, that, that, that's that's a cool way for that guy to get uh, f- famous, I guess. Let, give me a poem and put me out on stage and, <laughs> and let me recite it and get famous. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. How, that's how we did it. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and I was, I was curious. So with, with the main premise of, of the poem being that Casey strikes out at the end, uh, what was the main reason why you wanted to focus mainly your story uh, on Walter Brewers, who's the umpire? Yeah. uh, Well, probably because my officiating background a little bit, I knew, I knew a little bit about officiating and so that I could kind of like narrate the story from how the umpire felt and uh, but actually, after I finished my first draft, uh, I read it over and my week, my most boring character, I decided was the umpire. He just wasn't to me. He just wasn't that interesting compared to 
other characters like Nellie Bly, the reporter, and Casey. They, they just had bigger personalities than the umpire. And so when I wrote it, wrote it the second time, I made uh, put him on the spectrum. I put the umpire on the spectrum. And so he had all these kind of quirks about not making sure one food doesn't touch another and, and all these things. Plus, plus people on the spectrum are really cut out to focus. And so I made him like really good at umpiring because he could just kind of like focus on one thing, blank out everything, which is good umpires are, are good at anyway, is being able to focus when, especially up, especially if it's in your brain that you might've made a mistake, you, you, got, you can't be thinking about that when you're making your next call. So they, they have to be really good at getting rid of, of what they're thinking about from the last play and thinking about this play. So I think that made the umpire a lot more interesting in the book when I, when I put him on the spectrum. Of course, they didn't know what the spectrum was in uh, 1888. But when you, when you read what he, what he does, you know, in, in this day and age, the reader today knows that, yeah, this was somebody that was on the spectrum, even though they didn't call it that back then. Right. I, I, think, it's, I think it's cool to hear, uh, you know, how, how you were able to mold him pretty much in, into the narrator just from after your first draft. Cause most of the time when, when most of us read a book, we never really understand exactly how everything was able to come together and everything was able to mold and how multiple drafts is really able to help you really figure out the best way to tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think any first draft is very good, but mo- most, most uh, first time authors, they quit because they don't get through the first draft and they don't realize, well, the first draft, nobody's going to read that except you. And so, you know, if you're a first time author, you just need to push through and realize it's going to suck, but it's going to, it's not going to get good until you finish that first draft. So you can go back and start fixing things. And if you like are always trying, if you're writing and always trying to perfect going back to your first chapter, going back here, going back there and always trying to like get it perfect and never finishing, eventually, I think uh, authors give up instead of like pushing through a really crummy version of the book. And now you've got something that, that you can work with. That's interesting. Because yeah, I, feel, I feel like so, so many of us, especially myself, even with this podcast, it, I'm, I'm a very much perfectionist. And, and if, I can, if I can make it perfect, that'd be amazing. But it never, it never, it never usually turns out that way to where it's, it's exactly where I want it to be. But it, it's, it's always, it always comes out with what I'm happy with. And so, and so as, a, as a writer, it must, be, it must be difficult for you to get over that hump of that perfectionist sort of mindset to be a little bit more open-minded to try and make it into something that makes you happy and that you're happy with your work. Yeah. I think that, I think my journalism background helped me a little bit with that because I was always on deadlines there. Mm-hmm. And when you're on a deadline, uh, you can't sit there and, and look at your lead for a long time, trying to get your lead perfect. Well, the rest of the story just sits there and the clock's ticking. Right. You have to say, well, that lead's not very good, but I need to push through and write this whole story and I can come back to the lead after that and try to fix it rather than like spend an hour on the first paragraph trying to get that perfect. And uh, plus the deadline, you know, you always had to turn the story in before you thought it was like where you wanted it because otherwise you would spend a month when they wanted, needed the story by five o'clock that day. So, and now with the, with the internet, I think that's even more so they, they're like trying to, sh- they're trying, being first is like 
really important now because if you're first, you get more clicks. And so there's probably even less perfectionism going on with journalism now because they need to really get that out because the first publication that gets kind of a big story out, they get the early clicks. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. And so I was curious, uh, one last thing that I was curious about was what was your reaction uh, when you, when your book really started gaining national attention? Uh, you know, you never, that's another thing you never know as an author, you never know if it's any good, you know, for, for one thing, you read it and of course you're biased. And then the next people you, that read it are like friends and family. And of course they can't tell you what they really think. They all, oh, they just love it. You know, it's the best thing they ever read. Uh, but you really don't know if, if somebody that doesn't know you uh, is going to like it. So, you know, I, I had no idea if it was going to be any good. So it, it just like feels really good that people that I don't know don't have to say nice things about me uh, are leaving me really nice reviews and ratings and stuff and, and, and voting for the book on the good, on the Goodread site, uh, you know, books, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of great baseball fiction out there. And I'm not sure why, because a lot of good baseball fiction has become really good motion pictures, the natural mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and the field of dreams, I think was taken from shoeless Joe and, and several. So a lot of, a lot of good baseball fiction is successful. So I don't know why a lot of it's not been written. Uh, but that's another, I was able to get into the top 10 because it looks to me when I look at the list, it looks like to me that there's only about 15 really good baseball fiction books ever written. And that kind of, that kind of surprises me. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because it appeals to, to uh, sports fiction appeals to men and one men don't read as much as women. And two, the men that read are more likely to read nonfiction. And mm-hmm. so maybe there's, there's just never been a, like a big market for sports lit literature. There's, there's pretty good market for sports nonfiction, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, w- you know, there's, w- there's women that like, like to read sports and women that like to read sports fiction, uh, but maybe not enough of them. And the, and the men who are already a minority of readers to begin with uh, maybe they just don't, they don't want, want to read the fiction. So I, that's the only thing I can assume Uh so I tried to I tried to write the book that appealed and and all the other successful baseball books too they appeal to a broader readership they're about baseball baseball is kind of the primary subject but they expand into a lot of other areas That makes sense and it must have been something where kind of like when you were writing it like you said you tried to make it work for everybody to where any anybody could read it and enjoy it Yeah and that's why I brought in uh Nellie Bly who is a real life uh, reporter. She's, she's really well known because she was the first person to go around the world in, in 80 days. She actually made it in 72. The, the Jules Verne novel Around the World in 80 Days mm. came out uh, when it wasn't possible for anybody to circumnavigate the, the globe in 80 days. But by the uh, late 1880s, uh, rail, railroads were up and running uh, the ships were faster and they'd actually built a couple of, I don't know if they were bridges or, or something, but all of a sudden, you know, everybody looked at the possibility and it became, people looked at it as, you know, it would be possible to go around the world in 80 days. And Nellie Bly was the first person that did it. It was like this huge, uh, this was in the time of yellow journalism where, 
where they were uh, basically doing a lot of like flamboyant things to get readership. It was, it was the heyday of newspapers. Radio wasn't even invented yet. So like the average person back then read like two or three newspapers a day. So newspapers were king and uh, they were all pushing for circulation and, and, and street buys and that kind of thing with these like really outrageous things. So her going around the world in 80 days was one of those. She actually got famous though before that she infiltrated an insane asylum. Oh, wow. She went out on the street and pretended she was like just nuts and the, and a policeman like arrested her and she went before a judge and convinced the judge that she was crazy and got put into Blackwell's asylum, uh, Blackwell's Island insane asylum in New York and then wrote a big expose about the conditions in, in the insane asylum of being like really bad. And it, 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 changed, it changed not only that institution, but uh, uh, institutions all over the country because of what she did. So she, she was a very successful uh, reporter. And, and so, you know, of course, she, the whole baseball game is fiction, but I was able to figure out a way to get her at the baseball game and make it the very first baseball game she attended She'd actually written a book about her day, days in the, in the asylum. It was called 10 Days in a Madhouse. And uh, it was a successful book. And so I had her in California pushing this book, trying to sell this book, and then being escorted to this baseball game by the son of some senator or governor, is what she said in, in the book. She didn't even know uh, the son of who he was. But she, back then, you had to be a, women had to be escorted to baseball games. And this was her escort. And so I put her at the game. So we, she actually witnessed this fictional strikeout of Casey. And that, and that brings a kind of a female character in the book, an interesting character. She's kind of like uh, uh, ahead of her time as far as, you know, women weren't expected to be newspaper reporters back then, but she had to like uh, bow to the mores of the time too, like going to a game with an escort. She, you could tell that, you know, she didn't, she didn't like it. And she thought her escort was pompous because he was trying to explain the game to her. And you know how it's kind of like man speak, you know, you take, you take a woman to a game and you try to tell her like what everything there is to know about baseball. And exactly. pretty soon they're just bored and rolling their eyes. And so she's like that at that when she's at this game, she's like that as well. That's interesting. And, and lastly, I was just curious, Doug, uh, is there anything that uh, you're working on over the next year or two that uh, my listeners can look forward to? Uh, you know, I, I want to do one more book. But I, I'm trying to keep kind of keep my thing with the poems. And I've kind of been looking for a good poem that tells a story. And, uh, you know, I've thought about the night before Christmas, but I just can't figure out. I don't know if I want to write a Christmas book. Uh, so I'm trying, I've been doing a lot of thinking on how to take the poem the night before Christmas and write a, write a novel that's a little more than a Christmas novel. So I haven't figured that out, but that may be where I've headed. Uh, I may be going to like rip your, uh, uh, Rudyard Kipling. He wrote a lot of, a lot of poems. I've been reading a lot of his poems. I'm basically looking for a good poem that I can spin into another novel, but I haven't come up with one yet. 
Well, I'm definitely looking forward for for your next piece of work because this this one was definitely a, a, a home run. And for everybody that is listening right now, go on to Amazon, look up at the bat, the strikeout that shamed America by Dell Leonard Jones. And it's definitely a great read. And every place that I looked, even, even other than Amazon, the reviews all said five stars. And even some people said, I wish I could put more. So definitely go and check that out. And Dell, I really appreciate you talking about the book today and and for taking the time. Sure. Thank you. And if you, if you forget the name of the book, if you go to the Amazon site and just search for strikeout, for some reason, if you search Amazon site strikeout, uh, the book is like the first thing that comes up. So that's, that's kind of helpful, especially when exactly. uh, people are hearing things on, you know, people may be driving and listening to this, so they may not remember the name of the book, but they'll remember the name strikeout, just strikeout. So there you go. Look up strikeout and you're going to be able to find it. Thank you, Dal. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.